Hi, this is Dan Mendes from Next Gen Venture Partners, and I was really excited to chat recently with Robin Heffernan, the co-founder and CEO of Circulation. It's, a, I think, a great entrepreneurial story uh, from her time as a PhD engineer at Harvard and a venture capitalist to now founding three companies. And it's also a great story about potential disruption uh, in an industry that not a lot of people think about, which is non-emergency medical transportation. There's a huge opportunity there. There's um, a, a great way to improve our healthcare system. And I think Robin and her team are tackling it in a very interesting manner. So hope you enjoy this 25-minute uh, conversation. And uh, please feel free to give us comments, feedback on this and any other podcast. Robin, thanks so much for spending a little time with me today. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here with you. So I want to go back to 2012. Uh, you're an associate at the Boston-based venture firm Flybridge, uh, and you decide to leave uh, to co-found a company called Predalytics. Tell us about the story there. Yeah, so it was really nice to be working at Flybridge. Um, they were doing early stage investments, but also a little bit of incubation. So one of the groups that I was working on uh, ended up sort of evolving into Predalytics, which was taking some interesting risk analytics that were being applied to how do you uh, route optimize for truck and package delivery. Um, and they'd done a little bit of a one-off on detecting fraud um, in some CMS databases. And so we thought, wow, this is a really powerful analytic engine. Um, could we apply this in the healthcare space? Particularly, could we apply it and help health plans um, think about traditional things like readmissions risk um, and you know progression of chronic disease, but also totally new things like who's likely to disenroll from your plan in 30, 60, 90 days, um, and who's more likely to be receptive to a phone call versus a mailer uh, versus some other social media contact. So started that business um, and one of the key things that I realized in that was having a great business idea uh, and getting that launched was uh, one component of a successful business um, but a very large additional component was how do you grow the team um, and how do you make sure that a culture gets established and that that idea starts to evolve um, as it had been conceptualized in your head. So I was really excited about switching over to the operating side um, and helping to grow that business and, and sort of help it become what I had envisioned in my brain but had not yet translated to operations. Yeah, they don't teach you how to grow a team and grow a culture, you know, at at a venture firm or you know you had a, you got your PhD in engineering from Harvard before that. So what were the big lessons on team building, on culture building, on company building from that first startup? Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. Um, well, I did learn very quickly why most success, successful venture capitalists invest in team, 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 and then business um, because. Bunch of smart people, you know, figure out how to pivot um, and go in the right direction. So, you know, we made some great hires um, and we made some less than ideal hires in the business, and, and you get pretty smart on that. Um, you also get a much more tactical feel for what does it mean to be a good operations person versus sales versus, you know, technology officer or VP of engineering. Um, all of those 
prior to that for me were, were really just sort of names um, and FTE type roles uh, that we were evaluating. Yes. Something on the spreadsheet. Yeah, <laughs> Something on the like spreadsheet. Yeah, exactly. Full-time employee or contractor part-time. Um, but, but what is it, you know, what's a good personality and, and a good fit uh, for those type of roles and what's good in the beginning versus sort of 5 million of revenue, you know, versus much larger, which I will tell you, I still don't know what's good for much larger um, because we, uh, uh, Predilytics got acquired by WellTalk. Um, it's sort of the middle series A, series B stage. Um, and my other company, Epidemico, uh, got acquired by Booz Allen um, at a similar type of stage. So I have yet to experience the very large company. Tell us the story of Epidemico. This was a great story. Um, I met John Brownstein actually through Chris Keller uh, in your network, was friends with him. He introduced me to John. He said, you know, this guy is is a really smart thinker. He's built this product called Health Map inside Children's. Um, Go take a look at it. I think you'll like him. I think you'll like the project. So I was still at Flybridge, um, and I did that. And HealthMap is—it's a fascinating asset. Uh, if you go to healthmap.org, it's still publicly available. But it tracks infectious disease outbreaks. And so what John had built inside Children's was this aggregator of unstructured data, which happened to be news media and social media, um, and a proprietary taxonomy that looked at type of disease, who it was impacting, um, you know, time and date stamp, all of that, and could very reliably give you three weeks, if not greater, uh, early insight into a large disease outbreak across the globe. So I said, John, I think this is really interesting. I think, you know, disease outbreaks is great. We can sell that to the CDC and the WHO, and, and there's a lot of public health benefit in that. But what you've built is also fairly generic. If you can figure out another really interesting taxonomy, um, you can apply that against the same data sources. So we did that. Um, the second product we built with MedWatcher, it looked at how do people talk about the drugs, devices, and vaccines that they're taking in social media. Right? And so what are the adverse events that they're having? How do they think about uh, switching behavior um, we learned pretty quickly sort of uh, key things that someone thinks about when they take a drug, which is not at all what's on the label or what your doctor will tell you, right? It's, you know, how does it affect my sex drive and does it help me lose weight? Does it give me acne or not? Um, so that, that was a fascinating business. Um, and through that one, really it was all the way from the beginning of how do you license an asset outside um, of a large academic medical center and Boston Children's is decently savvy about licensing out therapeutics um, but this was the first time that they had ever licensed out a technology asset and so how do you think about that and then starting the building starting the company from number one employee um, and growing that, we got to about 30 people uh, by the time we got acquired by Booz Allen and then grew inside Booz Allen in their healthcare practice uh, to about 50. So it was fun. It's really fun. 
I want to move on to your current company, Circulation, but before we get into what you do and, and your vision there, I'm curious about your experience having started and then uh, run companies up to that sort of 30, 50-person level. Is that? Do you think that's your sweet spot, or it's just that you're waiting for that opportunity to go to 500 or 5,000? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I mean, I so I personally am sort of a systems type person, um, and I love thinking about healthcare as a system and, and how do you fundamentally change that large system. Um, and so the first two businesses, uh, you know, were very small point solutions in that, um, valuable point solutions. But when you think about, okay, I have an interesting predictive analytic tool, great. Right. What are all the? There's a bunch of services that need to be wrapped around that. You know, there's a whole provider patient recruitment side, um, and so that was inevitably going to get slotted into something much larger. Um, and then on the Epidemico side, again, really interesting technology tool, uh, but still a lot of white space in that area. Um, and so it needed to be able to, again, grow with the services arm and um, some other things that, that were appropriate for a larger company like Booz Allen. Circulation, I think, has a lot of headroom. Um, and I must say, from the beginning, this has been a far faster ramp uh, than I saw with either of the other two businesses because there is just this pent-up market demand for how do we deal with transportation better? <laughs> and in fact, we have that outside of healthcare. Um, we have a lot of free choice. We have on-demand options. We have consumers paying and, and governments paying and, uh, and other parties paying. Um, and yet, we really have none of that inside the healthcare environment yet. And flesh that out for people who don't know what, it, what sort of medical transportation looks like beyond an ambulance. Uh, you know, there's there's a, a large industry there that I think for the folks outside of healthcare or even in in parts of healthcare that don't touch it that they they wouldn't fully appreciate. Yeah, um, and and we didn't fully appreciate really until we dug into it in depth. Um, so right now, the market for non-emergency medical transportation uh, is largely legacy brokers um, and taxi vouchers. So brokers are um, aggregators of taxi companies, wheelchair fleets, and non-emergency ambulance. Uh, and, and I say legacy, you know, in, in many different contexts, they still require several days advance notice for you to call up and request your ride. They give you a booking window, like it's cable installation, you know, please, please be ready for this ride uh, for two to four hours. And then at the end of the day, Sometimes they don't show up. They just leave you stranded. There's really no apologies about it. Um, and the folks that are paying for those rides get no transparency about what's happening. They get no uh, assurances or, or really any sort of ability to control that uh, and to give power ultimately to the patient and the individual. And then if you don't do that and you've got the taxi voucher, uh, that's problematic, as, as you can imagine, to be able to set thresholds on it and also to be able to collect all those receipts at the end of the day and aggregate those appropriately and, and understand 
how is this actually impacting someone's care? Um, so it was a space that was ripe for bringing in innovation, bringing in an exchange platform that could say, look, we'll help you understand what's your eligibility for this ride, all of the controls around it. Let's let you book you know, a number of different options, consumer choice, you choose what makes sense for you at the end of the day. Um, and it'll be cashless and frictionless and all of the billing will be dealt with um, on the backside and it will just, you know, feel effortless and seamless to you. So we're, we're excited about this. Um, and I think we've seen from the market so far that the market is excited <laughs> to evolve to this um, this type of innovation that, that, again, you know, exists outside of healthcare, but not yet for health systems. Who do you sell into and what are the key elements of the value proposition for them? Great question. Um, we serve a lot of different opportunities right now. So we work with hospitals, uh, we work with payers, we work with private clinics, uh, we help clinical trials, homeless shelters. Um, actually, as you're seeing more behavioral health and, and substance abuse and those type of things um, being thought about uh, and cared about for patients, we're also seeing more of those come on the platform. And for those clients, uh, we offer a number of benefits. So, you know, we are heavily focused on the experience of the patient. Um, and that experience is, let's get a ride, you know, let's get it to you within five minutes of when you want it. Let's make sure that it arrives on time. Let's make sure that you have a positive interaction um, on that ride. And that's really important because for most of these health systems, really the patient journey starts with the ride and it ends with the ride. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that a health facility can do inside their walls to make sure that things go well. Um, but they also need to remember that these bookmarks are the logistics to and from, and that's the first impression and the last impression for a patient. Uh, second, you know, the economics matter. Um, and so for our clients, we save a lot of money for them. Um, a lot of what we're doing day one is diverting what would have been a taxi ride to an Uber ride. And generally that's 40 to 50% cost taken out um, right off the bat. We are tracking um, and studying with our clients and, and hopefully we'll have a lot of publications coming out on this early next year. How does it impact the broader, um, you know, larger, more significant costs that are around bed utilization or reduction in no-show rates, uh, reduction in ambulance trips to the ER because you have a cough and it just really wasn't convenient for you to make it to your PCP appointment two days earlier to deal with it there. Um, and so those, those are the bulk of the metrics um, that we're focused on and interested in, in tracking and really making a dent in. I always like uh, learning about how this got started. So, uh, it's sh same co-founder from your last company. Were the two of you sitting around, having been acquired by Booz Allen <laughs> Hamilton, just spitballing ideas? Uh, did you happen to, you know, have a you know a client come to you and say, "I've got this problem. What do I do? Where did this all start?" Yeah, yeah. No, it's this is, this is a good one. Um, 
So really two different lenses. Uh, one, John and I started working with Uber in 2012. Um, John wrote a ticket into their, you know, how did your ride go that said, my ride was great. Um, I'd like to do vaccines on demand with Uber. And amazingly enough, someone on the other end responded and said, wow, I think that's really interesting. So we worked uh, with pharma company and nurse organization and Uber to launch in four cities this Uber Health campaign, which, you know, for one day you could request on demand that a nurse come to you and give you the flu vaccine. I remember that. I remember I remember uh, getting that. Do you participate? I didn't, um, okay. mostly out of laziness, if I remember correctly, not because I had already gotten the flu, flu vaccine. Okay. Uh, but I thought it was a really good idea. I thought it was really clever. I also thought that it indicated how much money was flowing into the, uh, the company uh, for marketing purposes. I thought, well, that, that's a company with many billions of dollars of financing. Um, yes, yes. It was, it was a great event, though. And the subsequent years, we've run it nationally. Um, interestingly enough, most of the folks who ended up getting those vaccines, you know, were people like you and me, uh, who are fully capable of walking down the block to CVS or Walgreens, Walmart, uh, and getting the vaccine. But, but the novelty and the convenience and the cashless uh, piece of it was huge. For those consumers so that was eye-opening um and and had us sort of initiate a relationship with uber john became their official health advisor we started working with them thinking about how does uber want to play in the health space what are they good at you know where do they need some augmentation at the same time um i help on the board with commonwealth care alliance which is a dual eligible plan in massachusetts they take care of the sick of the sick um, and so these members are chronically ill, disabilities, behavioral health issues, um, substance abuse issues, and they do an amazing job keeping most of the population who's nursing home certifiable in their home using community resources uh, to take care of them effectively. What was, what was fascinating um, at the same time was looking at them, they had a bunch of different groups that were coming from other states saying, we wanna look like you in California and Texas, New Mexico, as we take on the same type of patient population. And, and so CCA was not interested in expanding beyond Massachusetts, um, but they were interested in how can we codify our knowledge um, and, and transmit that to other groups who want to look like us and help patients in the same way? So we went through the process of looking at everything they do in provider contracts, member recruitment, assessing the member, developing this multidisciplinary care team, elaborate care plans, and then they outsource transportation. And it fell apart because the patients couldn't get to and from, the supplies were not getting to and from, it was very expensive, inefficient. Um, and so we thought, huh, well this is a place where Uber could help um, and a broader exchange would be immensely valuable. And it would be an exchange that would move people, nurses, caregivers, it would also move product like prescriptions and DME and and food, as nutrition is becoming a really important piece of someone's care plan. Uh, and it would serve our public health interest of 
we'd actually have a venue for mass distribution of vaccines or something in the case of an emergency. So those, those two pieces together uh, kicked off circulation. And so in theory, you could have a contract with the federal government for uh, mass distribution of, of some kind of emergency vaccine if necessary. You could be that distribution uh, venue. Um, I think I find that really interesting. And I also want to go back to something you said a minute ago, um, which is it sounds like uh, you might be an, a key element in keeping um, disabled people, the elderly, um, in their homes as opposed to in institutions, which people mm-hmm. tend to like less and also also are far, far more expensive. So it's, all, it's all, this transportation layer, getting people to the hospital, getting people to the CVS to get their prescriptions, uh, you, know, you could almost imagine it bending the cost curve just by, you know, through its facilitating, uh, allowing people to stay in their homes. Is that fair or am I exaggerating the possibilities? No, no, it's exactly the case. Um, I mean, again, sort of back to the system's view, if you will believe, and, and I think everybody agrees at this point, it, it is not sustainable to have 20% of your GDP or more uh, going to healthcare costs, nor is it actually improving outcomes on the other side. You got to remove costs, and you got to do that, you know, and still have high-quality patient care um, and good outcomes. And so, a lot of that, really, I would I would say the bulk of that um, is around the logistics and the management of it, right? I mean, you should not be using hospital resources for a complex chronic member. Hospitals were meant for acute episodes: get somebody on, you know, fix them, get them back home. If someone has, you know, five diseases, you need to figure out how to manage that chronic disease in a sort of in a good environment for that patient um, and, a, and a cost efficient environment. So we are seeing a lot more services go out to the home. Um, we have clients already who move nurses in the platform to deliver home care. We have some pharma clients in the clinical trial space that move phlebotomists and other specimen collectors um, out to the home because it'll make more sense to collect a specimen at home than to bring someone in to a clinical trial site. Uh, And I think we will see more and more of that as primary care is delivered in um, you know, retail clinics and urgent care clinics that are popping up all over the place, um, as well as home care services. What do you think the future of those retail clinics is? Uh, so, you know, I, I think about, you know, Minute Clinic and my local CVS, uh, but uh, it seems like there's almost endless opportunities for that kind of thing. What, what's the future of those clinics and how do you play into it? Yeah, I think this is a fascinating space, which is really what's the future of primary care? Um, and there's been some recent studies out, Deloitte, McKinsey, a couple healthcare shops that suggest, um, you know, similar to the way that consumers consume most else, uh, they want to consume healthcare and they care mo- most about convenience. They don't actually care that much about credentialing of providers. Uh, they're, you know, cost sensitive, um, but it's not about every cent. They want convenience. Uh, and they want instant gratification. So I think that that the role of primary care in the future, you know, is is going to shift to an environment where it is convenient. Um, it's part of your grocery store shopping or it's part of your, uh, 
uh, clothes shopping or the other errands that you're running, or someone is coming out to your home to deliver services. Um, and I think we'll see more and more of that and less of these dedicated primary care clinics uh, where people have to go to consume services. Let's imagine you're an absolute wild success. Uh, where is circulation 10 years from now? 10 years, wow. Um, I thought I was doing well by thinking out three to five years. Well, that's because that's all the capitalists <laughs> ask for in your But let's think really big. Well, and part of the reason I ask is, you know, I look at you know a company like Uber, uh, which which is your partner and is arguably the uh, the most successful startup of the last decade. Where they began was, you know, black cars for the wealthy to you know go clubbing on Saturday night. And where they are today is aiming for transportation as convenient as running water, uh, yeah. and and in you know cities all over the country doing something you know very close to that. Uh, what could you imagine that being for you? Yeah, so I mean, I see an evolution in the platform that it's going to deal with an immense level of sophistication and complexity, and yet none of that is going to be placed on the individual or the member. So what I mean by that is the platform broadens, right? And now it's, it's going to move you, it's going to move your nurse, it's going to do your prescriptions, it's going to do your durable medical equipment. And, you know, it may do that for you and your family members. There is a whole host of uh, understanding eligibility and authorization that needs to happen to be able to track those rides. And then on the back side, you know, healthcare is a really interesting space where the person who consumes something is very rarely the person who's actually paying for that. Um, and so as you think about the services expanding, this one event that may get coordinated for you may have 10 different people paying for it and you have a copay into that. Uh, and so I think the value and the potential for the circulation platform is to be that platform that can handle all of that sophistication and, and coordinate the set of logistics around healthcare, uh, which is only going to evolve, but can maintain a level of simplicity to the member. Um, so that again, it's really just, what do I need? And, and we'll probably even get smart about <laughs> understanding what you need, maybe even before you know what you need, uh, and getting to that to you conveniently, um, and, and sort of all of the other headaches behind the scenes. Robin, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Thank you so much, Dan. This is great. Thank you so much, Dan. This is great.